My name's Shane Norwood. I'm a former cop with 20 years of experience. I started this podcast to celebrate and embrace the order and chaos in all of our lives. And while this podcast is not exclusively for law enforcement officers, I dedicate each and every episode to the men and women out there holding that thin blue line between the order and chaos in our society. In this episode, I share my raw personal account of how PTSD and depression, along with some really bad decisions and a failure to reach out for help, brought an untimely end to my law enforcement career. It is my sincere hope that hearing my story may motivate others to reach out for the help they need before it's too late. And with that, I welcome you to the premiere episode of Order and Chaos. I call this episode Broken Blue. All right, welcome to the very first episode of Order and Chaos. I'm Shane Norwood. I'm your host. I am a former law enforcement officer. I spent about 20 years on the job. Got to work a wide variety of assignments from patrol. I did two tours in detectives. I uh, was on the department SWAT team. I worked a dog. Uh, I was a school resource officer, a field training officer. So I had so many great assignments over the years. And I look back on my career with a great sense of pride. And I'm so incredibly thankful to have had the opportunity uh, to wear the uniform and to work alongside some really incredible human beings in the process. So what is Order and Chaos and why did I start this podcast? Initially, the, the thought was I was going to release a podcast, a single episode to tell my story of my struggles with PTSD and depression. And I wanted to balance that out with integrating the need for personal accountability and personal responsibility. So you can't just blame PTSD and depression for all the bad stuff that happens in your life. You, you have to take ownership of the fact that something's not right. And I need to reach out for help. The problem is, is that a lot of these symptoms come on very, very slowly and you, and you just feel like it's just a normal part of life. It's not like something drastic that happens and you go, Oh, holy shit, I'm depressed. Oh, holy shit. I have PTSD. That's not how it works. You know, these things typically come on very gradually. And I think that's especially true in law enforcement because we're just constantly exposed to bad shit, you know, and, and, and you suck it up and you adapt and overcome and, and you press on and get the mission accomplished. And it takes a toll over a period of time. Speaking of getting missions accomplished, I, I want to pause and take an opportunity to recognize a segment of our police professionals that often get overlooked. And that's our dispatchers. Dispatchers have a very unique stress that they experience working that radio. I know this because prior to getting hired full-time as a police officer, I, I tr- was trained as a dispatcher and I worked dispatch shifts with my first department. And I remember that sense when, when, when an officer would, would call for help or they'd be involved in a fight and you could tell the elevated stress in their voice on the radio or, or, you know, in the worst case scenarios, you can hear shots being fired in the background or some horrific thing. And as a dispatcher, you just feel very helpless. All you can do in that moment is send them resources. Make sure that you keep your head about you the best you can and, and organize mutual aid or other units to, to respond and, and help this officer. But 
you can't see what's going on, at least not yet. There's no cameras that are showing stuff in real time. I'm sure that's coming. Uh, but as of right now, in 2020, you cannot, from dispatch, see what is going on with that officer. You just hear it. And then there's those moments where you no longer hear anything. And that officer is not responding any longer. And I've had an opportunity to work with and talk to dispatchers who have experienced these types of feelings. And if you, if you think for a minute that they're immune from trauma because they sit behind a console, you are, you are so sorely mistaken. Our dispatchers take the brunt of a lot of trauma just based on that sole fact that they can't see what is going on. All they can do is try to help through, through, the, through the direction of, and coordination of resources. And a lot of these officers, remember, I mean, unless you're working a big city, most of the officers know the dispatchers. So there's, it's personal, right? It's not just a voice. It's not just a call sign. There's a human being that this person has, a, has some type of relationship with, whether they're friends or whether they're just, they just know each other casually at work. But either way, it's not just a number and a call sign. And that stress is often overlooked. And I think it's, it's dismissed as not being as strong as the stress that officers face in the field. I just wanted to make sure that I made it crystal clear that our dispatchers need to be taken care of too. All right, now that that's said, what are the future plans for order and chaos? So I already mentioned that the original plan was just to do one episode and tell my story. And then I thought, no, I think we need to keep this thing going. And I didn't want it to be a law enforcement exclusive podcast. I wanted it to be a podcast where I bring on guests from all walks of life and we just talk about life. We talk about the chaos and how we manage it. Uh, we talk about uh, things that keep us healthy and how, how we bring things back into order. And I want to bring on people that do a wide variety of different jobs or maybe own a business. So that way, when you're listening to the podcast, you, you may have thought that you could never relate to the CEO of some, of some company. But when they start talking about just real life shit, you're like, okay, maybe we're not so different after all. Maybe a small business owner. You, you've never owned a business. Maybe you have no desire to own a business, but you hear the small business owner talking about their, the, the chaos in their lives and how they bring things back into order and how they, how they manage stress, how they deal with the day-to-day -day BS. And maybe you take a nugget from that, or maybe you can relate fully to somebody. Either way, there's value in hearing how other people deal with things in their lives because there's a tendency for us to think that we're in this shit alone. You know, when you have some major problem, you're going through something, there's a tendency to think you're the only one, even though logically we know that's not true. But, but you're, when, when you're dealing with a situation that's unpleasant, that's where all your focus is. And I think it's, I think there's a, a, a tremendous sense of value in just having people on that, that can help you realize that, okay, not only am I not alone, but I never thought of handling it in that way. 
It's just nice to have options. It's nice to have additional tools. And that's what I hope to accomplish with the podcast. All right, so there you have it. Um, Let's get into the actual story, the reason why everybody's here. I start off with a, a little bit of a disclaimer. There's a need for me to qualify something right from the onset. There's some things that you're about to hear that I'm incredibly ashamed of. And undoubtedly, those of you out there who know me personally are going to hear some of this stuff for the first time. And it may very well change your perception of me, rightfully so. All I can ask is that you hear it out and see what's possible when you hit rock bottom and you decide all these things that I was afraid of finding out about myself, I'm going to go find out. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty bad. And it's not something I would wish on my worst enemy. But I am so incredibly thankful that it all happened and it played out the way that it did, that nobody got hurt. You know, it could have been so much worse. And I'm so incredibly thankful that it played out the way that it did because the the person that I am today and the place that I'm at today is the best place and the best version of me that I've ever been in my entire life. So I'll take it. Along those lines, nothing I'm about to say can be blamed exclusively on post-traumatic stress disorder or depression. It was a major contributing factor, obviously. But an equally major contributing factor was I wasn't getting help. I knew something was wrong with me and I was too afraid to get the answer. Much like people who won't go to the doctor because they're afraid of the blood test or they're afraid of the the diagnosis. It's very, very similar with when you're dealing with a emotional or mental issue. You don't want to find out what the problem is because you don't want to have to face it and you don't want to have a label. You don't want to have a diagnosis. You just want to live in a fairy tale land where hopefully it just goes away. So one of the things that I preach to myself on a daily basis and through this podcast, we'll be sharing my own personal journey in this is self-accountability and self-policing. What does that mean? Well, it means that I am responsible for myself. And that may seem obvious, but for some, it's not. And when you get to a point in your life where you're facing the absolute worst depression that you've ever faced in your life, it's real easy to start blaming external factors, other people, circumstance. And that's just bullshit that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Because most of the time, we can trace a problem back to something that we did, to some contribution that we had in the problem. It doesn't mean that all problems in our lives are our fault. All it means is typically we can trace something back to ourselves to find the solution. And we don't want to self-police a lot of times because it's, it's one of the most challenging and avoided human behaviors. I mean, it, it requires complete and total raw honesty with ourselves. 
And it, and it demands a sincere willingness to call yourself out on your own bullshit. And that's not something that we want to do. So today, in this podcast, in this episode, I'm going to call myself out on my bullshit and I'm going to share it all with you. So just to give you some background about my career briefly, I started in law enforcement when I was 18. I had somehow got a waiver to attend the Reserve Academy while I was a senior in high school. So I was 17, day one, week one of the academy. I graduated the Reserve Academy a week shy of graduating high school. And I was off to the races, man. I'm going to go save the world now. And there were only a couple of agencies that would even consider me to be a reserve police officer at 18. I applied with both and I was in the process with both. I ended up getting hired with, with an agency. And uh, there I'd be out there on patrol, 18 years old, 5'11", 147 pounds, soaking wet. And, uh, and I look back on that now and I just think that that's surreal. Uh, the, the fact that an agency would trust me at 18 years old with a badge and a gun, but I digress. Uh, I ended up getting full t- hired full-time with that agency. Uh, I worked patrol. I worked uh, detectives. Um, I worked a dog with that agency. I got married and divorced while working for that agency. I had my son during that time. And um, for sake of privacy and brevity, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about personal stuff. Um, but suffice it to say that, and I think a lot of cops or just anybody out there can relate to this, that when you combine your personal issues, especially if they're very significant and, and mine involving my son and, and my, through my divorce and my ex-wife and when she remarried, let's just say this, that you could not imagine two polar opposite households with two diametrically opposed views on how a child should be raised. And my son ended up getting exposed to a lot of really horrific things. And uh, like I said, um, you'll just have to take my word for it, that it had a profound impact on me as a father. Because the only thing that I, I love being a father and I love being a cop. Those are the two things that I loved in life, but in that order, I would have gladly given up my career for my son. If I, if, if that was what was required of me. And I'm sure I speak for every other father out there listening that there's nothing more important in life than your children. And, uh, so the things that he was exposed to and the things that, that happened with him, it it really impacted me. And then plus I had, you know, my own things that were going on professionally and it was causing me to, to perform not so hot at work. And that should have been a clue because I was always, I mean, I got hired at 18. Then I got hired full-time at 21. And, you know, I was a detective at 22 and a canine handler at 24. And, you know, I just hit the ground running in my career and it should have been a red flag to everybody involved, but especially to myself when my, my performance starts to decline and when I'm not getting stuff done on time. And, and, you know, I was just, I, it, it was just, it was a rough period of time. And so, like I said, that you're, <laughs> we're skipping through a ldon't want to, 
I have to be careful about what I, what I disclose that's personal, but ultimately what ended up happening is that would be when I would first experience what depression was like. And I wasn't diagnosed. I had never gone to see a, a therapist. That was especially a no-no back then. Uh, this we're talking about in the mid nineties, uh, mid to late nineties, you, you cops didn't go see therapists. You saw, you saw a therapist one time and that's when you got hired. And then if you had to see one again after that, it probably wasn't a good thing for your career. And so I, um, I didn't reach out. I didn't, I didn't, uh, seek help. You know, I, I just sucked it up because that's what you did. And then at some point I started isolating myself and, and pulling away from people. And if you know anything about depression and the symptoms of PTSD, which we're going to talk about here very shortly, one of the main things to look out for is isolation. When somebody loses joy in the things that once gave them tremendous joy, you know, whether it be activities or relationships or whatever it may be, if, if, if there's something that you really enjoy and then, and then one day you start to find that those things that used to give you such satisfaction and happiness no longer do, that is a big red flag. And that's what I was experiencing. And, and then I found out if I, if I drink, I mean, that's perfectly legal. All cops do that for the most part. And if I drink, I, I tend to be a little bit happier and, and I can, I can sleep at night and I don't have bad dreams and I don't have these, these thoughts that, that, that kind of taunt me from time to time. And I don't have to worry about certain things because I'm just in this numb state. And I got to a point to where I could really only have fun if I was out either with coworkers or friends drinking or if I was home by myself drinking. And then uh, it came to a point where ultimately I, like I said, I, I withdrew from a lot of my friends. I, I, I lost joy in a lot of the, the things that, that, I, that I had always found joy in. And then, but one thing that I kept in my life was, was karaoke. And, and <laughs> the reason why I did that is because I could go to the karaoke bar on the nights that I didn't have my son and I could get up and sing and perform because I'm a ham. I'm sure you could never guess that, but I, I'm a ham. And I get up there and, and do my thing. And then I could go sit down and not speak to anybody. I'd have people come to me and, you know, and compliment me or want to buy me a drink. And that was cool. I was good with that, but don't sit down and want to have a conversation with me. So one night I, uh, I went out to karaoke, typical night. I don't have my son that night. I'm, I'm going to go and get my fix. And I knew I had a headlight out on my truck and wasn't even worried about it. I wasn't the type to get wasted and, and, and go drive. You know, that just, that's not what I did. I, I wanted to go and enjoy myself, have a couple of drinks and, and feel numb for a bit and get some praise and accolades for my performance and then get in my car and go home and go to bed. So this was going to be a night like any other night. And I ended up going to this karaoke bar and did my thing and, and left and felt perfectly fine and got, got in my truck and started to drive off. And CHP officer happens to notice that I've got this headlight out. So he flips around and lights me up and 
the rest is history. Feeling fine turned out that I was actually a little over the legal limit. And as a result, I found myself in a CHP patrol car and en route to county jail. And that would be the end of my career with that department. I never, when, when I left that, when that happened to me, I, I don't want to say that I became more depressed. It was just that I, my depression made a transformation. The things that, that depressed me before now I had, I had different elements of it now. Right. So I have to tell my son who I think at this point in his life, he was five. I have to tell him daddy's not a cop anymore. To me, that was a tremendous source of depression. An, 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 an added factor to my depression was, was having to tell my son and, 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 and not be able to tell him why. I hid it from everybody. I hid it from my family. I hid it from most friends. My closest friends knew what was going on because most of them were in law enforcement, so they're going to know. But I, I didn't tell a lot of people. I was very, very ashamed. And this happened in 2008. This was during the height of the recession and it was very difficult to find work. And I was fortunate enough to have a, a, a friend of a friend that gave me a job and kind of got me back on my feet. And then the next two years would be a two-year lesson in humility. I eventually got a job working as an assistant manager at Petco. And if there's anybody out there listening to this from Petco, that was one of the best jobs I ever had minus the pay. Uh, being a manager there, I had a lot of really good staff and, and that actually gave me a, a great sort, sense of pride. And, and it was, and, and of all the times that I went through during the, you know, that transition in my life, that was probably one of the better ones. I ran into some people that worked for a different agency that was uh, in the same county where I had worked previously. And these guys are telling me, look, man, it's been two years, a little over two years. Everybody fucks up. Like, obviously you're doing better. Why don't you, you know, you paid your dues, man. Why don't you reach out to our chief and kind of hit them up and let them know what's going on in your life and, and see if he'll, see if he'll give you a chance. And, uh, it took a little bit of arm twisting and I had run into them two or three different times. And then finally they're telling me, look, man, you got to do it. You got to do it. And so I, I did, I reached out to the chief of this department and told my story and what I, what I'd felt that I had learned in the process. And one thing that's real important to point out here is that my level of depression was nothing back then to compare in comparison to what it would be a few years later and, and my deepest, darkest rock bottom point. But what I want to point out is that I thought that this lesson in humility is what had cured me, but I had never reached out to get help for the underlying issues that led me to the place to where I was withdrawing and, and finding myself in these high risk situations. Like I was in the night that I went to the karaoke bar and, and 
thought I was okay to drive and ended up going to jail. And that's important to remember. The reason why I felt better is because I had this separation from law enforcement, right? So I, I don't have, I had a two-year break from the day-to-day that we all face in uniform. When we're working that job, there's day-to-day shit that you just, you deal with and it adds up. And when you get a break from that, you feel better. So the combination of having some character building going on in my life and some humility, and then the break that I had from law enforcement, I felt whole again. And I, and nothing could be further from the truth. But I ended up getting hired. This, this chief gave me an, an opportunity. I ended up getting hired and I was extremely happy being in this job and in, in this department. I, I loved working for this department. The, the guys and girls that I worked with were top notch. I almost immediately established friendships. I felt welcomed. Nobody talked shit to me, at least not to my, not to my face, at least uh, about, you know, the DUI or, or, or any of that stuff. They, they just accepted me and they embraced me for the experience that I had. And I was given a tremendous amount of opportunities. To this day, I look back on that, on working with those people and with that, for that department with a great sense of pride. And I'm so happy that I still have great relationships with people that, that I worked with there because it really was a tremendous agency with, with some amazing people. So everything was good. You know, I, I was on the department for a few years and I felt pretty healthy. You know, I, I was, I was given great opportunities. You know, I'm, I, I was asked to go into detectives and then invited to try out for the SWAT team and end up making the team. And that was a, a lifelong goal of mine that I, I quite honestly didn't know if I was ever going to fulfill and to be given that opportunity to be on a team with these elite guys. I mean, it was really something. And I, I just felt good. You know, I felt good. And now by this stage, my son is um, in his early teenage years. And, you know, what I previously mentioned about the, the diametrically opposing views of raising him in the two different, I mean, polar opposite households that he had to live in. Well, the influences in the other household ultimately led him to start using drugs. And then right under my nose, dad being a police officer, he somehow decided to be a good idea to join a gang. And um, I really wish I could share more about it. And I just, and I just don't feel comfortable. I, I don't think it's the right thing to do. It just, it, it, it really, really tore me up. And then as a result of that, you know, he gets older and, and he now can choose where he wants to live. And so I would see him occasionally. I would see him almost daily to take him to school. I would see, obviously I'd go to all his events. Like if he had a baseball game, I, I did my very best to go to almost all of them if I didn't have to work. And then I would pick him up from practice or take him back home to his mother's after a game. And that would really be the only time that I would get to see him. And that was uh, incredibly difficult. 
not having him home with me overnight in his room, uh, you know, talking about it now, it's, um, I just realized how difficult that was for me. And he was, you know, my only child and it was just him and I. And so, uh, it was difficult. It was, it was difficult to say the least. Well, what ended up happening is, is I, I get this opportunity to, to go back into child sex crimes investigation. And if any of you, if, 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 if there's anybody out there listening, that's ever worked child sex crimes, I don't think there's a more demanding job in the police department than conducting forensic interviews of children. It is, it is a very, very difficult thing to do, but it's a very rewarding thing to do. If you're, if, and I hate to call it this, but if you're good at it and you can build rapport with children and you can get them to disclose horrific things that happen to them, it's hard to hear these things, but it is so rewarding when they open their mouth and they talk. And so I had this dichotomy, you know, right, where I'm incredibly proud of the work I do, but it's doing me in. And, and the reason why is not so much because of what the children were saying, and, and those things are horrific, but it was this combined issue that I had personally with my son and, and feeling like I was losing him. And I, I started at... Um, I started to have these horrific dreams and they, and they kind of came out of nowhere. I, um, I would have this, this dream where there was a big meadow and then this abandoned house in the middle of the meadow. And from a distance, I could hear this child screaming from inside the house, but from that far out, you could barely make out what was going on or what was being, you know, what, what the child was screaming and, or, Definitely could not identify who it was. But then as you got closer, I, I realized that this, this child in the dream is my son when he was about probably four or five years old. And, and without fail, what would happen, and I had this dream on multiple occasions. So let's say that that night I had interviewed a child about being sodomized. Okay. In this dream, which... Much later on, when I got into therapy, I learned that this was actually classified as a night terror, the, the level that this rose to. It was so lucid and so horrific and real that it, when you're, if you've ever had one of these, it, 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 it feels like reality to the point to where when you wake up, you, it takes a while for you to realize that that wasn't reality at all. But, it, but it's not something, you know, when you wake up from a dream, you're like, oh, that was a crazy dream. This takes like a minute or two for you to wake up and, and talk yourself down and realize, get your bearings and, and realize that this was just a really horrific dream. Anyway, long story short, I'm, a, I'm able to, in every single one of the dreams, I'm able to break into the house and there's, you know, these two by fours and, and pieces of plywood on the windows and I'm pulling and trying to yank these things off. I'm getting splinters in my hands and my hands are bleeding and you could feel the pain. As crazy as that sounds, it, it, 
if you, if you've never experienced it, just take my word for it. It's, it is one of the worst things that you can experience. And I'm able to get into the house and I'm able to get to the door where I can tell that my son is now on the other side of that door. And I'm able to break the door down. And for a split second, every single time without fail, it was the same exact thing. I'd break the door down and I would see a figure committing whatever act or a similar act to what a child had disclosed to me either that night or maybe a couple of nights prior or a couple of days prior in an interview or within close proximity of the time that I interviewed a child, I would have this dream and whatever that child disclosed, say it was sodomy or forced oral cop or something like that. It, I would, I would break down the door and I would see that being performed on my son just for a split second. And then I would wake up in the, in the most frightened state, sweating, you know, just heart racing. And I didn't say a fucking thing. And so one day, um, I found out we were going to get a new sergeant in the unit. And a lot of times when that happens, new leadership comes in and they bring in their own people. And while I didn't want to leave the unit at the same time, I was a little relieved because I had a feeling I was probably going to be replaced. And so as a preemptive strike to that, I knew that the next thing I really wanted to do was, was be a school resource officer. It was, it was something that I just really, really had a heart for. At the time, my son was in high school and, and it just seemed like a great time to do it. And so I put in a memo and, and kind of laid it out there that like, hey, I know sometimes when there's a new sergeant, there could be a change in, in the team. And if, if that were the case, I would really like to go to the high school. Well, <laughs> it worked out pretty well because the department was a little relieved, I'm sure, that they could give me the news that I was being removed from the unit and reassigned to a position that I really wanted. What they didn't tell me was, yeah, you're going to work the high school, but we don't have anybody yet to replace you as a child forensic interviewer. And, and there was no real clear indication as to when that person was going to be trained to take my spot. So I was voluntold that you're going to work at the high school but you're also going to do the child forensic interviews, which if anybody out there has ever worked in that assignment, you know that that is beyond a full-time job, right? Child forensic interviewing and, and, and the investigation of child sex crimes is more than a full-time job, especially in a busy town where you unfortunately have a lot of children that are victimized, which we did. So, but I wasn't going to say anything. You know, this department gave me a second chance. I wasn't going to open my mouth and say anything that, that would, you know, cause them to, to second guess my loyalty. And I tried it. I tried to do both and it was brutal. And it, and it, man, it really, really screwed me up. So I'm still having these nightmares. You know, I'm, I'm having these, you know, I'm just and this anxiety every single time when I get a call, like, oh, we have a child that was, you know, say it was a, just throwing out circumstances, you know, this a five-year-old that was molested by her uncle, which was unfortunately very common. 
I would have this anxiety because I'm like, if I interview this child, I'm going to have this dream. And so I was definitely a social drinker. I love to go out and have a good time with people. But I also knew that if I drank enough, I would always just pass out. So I started to, I started to use that as, as a remedy, right? I knew that if I went home after one of these interviews, I was most likely going to have this dream again. And I didn't want to have it. I didn't, I didn't fucking want that dream. That was the worst shit ever. And so I, um, you know, I just drink a few cocktails and knock out, worked like a charm. What a great solution, right? Then I get up in the morning, you know, about 6.30 in the morning and take a shower and compose myself and go to the school and work a full day at the school and then sometimes have to go do some detective shit at night. And uh, ultimately what happened was I, I didn't, my, my career at the high school didn't last very long because we had an event at the school and one of our seniors had brought a date who was an adult. He was 18. He had graduated the year prior and I can't go into a lot of specifics about it because I think it's still an active case. But when everything was all said and done, there was an altercation and I ended up getting injured in the altercation. What I didn't know is that the injury was significant. It was pretty major. I thought I sprained my wrist. And so I was trying to work through it and you know, the, the department needed me because if I went out on injury, they had nobody to do these interviews and the high school needed me because that, that high school was busy and I had plenty of work. So, you know, between those two things, I, I was going to keep working. If there was any way that I, any way possible, I was going to do it. Well, then it got to a point where a week has gone by and I can't even type my reports because my hand is so sore and swollen. I can't grasp a pencil, you know, to sign my name. Well, then some days the swelling would be down and I could type and I could grasp a pencil. And so I just figured this will eventually get better. I think it was about a month into it. I'm working this way and I'm having good days and bad days. And I went to the range and we were doing shooting drills one hand only, which we did at virtually every range. And when I drew my pistol with my right hand and went to fire it, first of all, it was virtually impossible to pull the trigger. And when I finally did, I almost dropped my weapon. And I said, okay, fuck this. Like now I'm a liability. I'm a liability to my partners. I'm a liability to the community and I'm a liability to myself. And so I went in and told my supervisor, I said, hey, I'm sorry, but I think this is worse than we were originally told. I don't think this is a sprain. I think there's something else going on. And so they sent me out for an MRI and come to find out I had uh, three uh, torn ligaments, one that was completely torn. And uh, this, the orthopedic surgeon tells me, hey, you'd have been better off breaking your wrist because these ligaments are, they're no joke. And if we don't get the surgery done right away, you're going to lose range of motion in your hand. You're probably never going to go back to work. 
when I, when I parked my patrol car in the back lot of that station, the last day that I ever got to drive one, the last day that I was ever in uniform, I had no idea that when I went in to tell my command staff that I think my hand's a little worse than we originally thought. I had no idea that that would be the last time that I would ever walk into that station or park my patrol car in the back lot of the station as, as a police officer. I, 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 I had no idea that that was the case. I just figured that I'm going to go in and, and I'm going to have surgery or whatever I need. And I'm going to come back to work. So when we get that diagnosis, they end up putting me off on full disability. And that was fine for a couple of weeks. I actually kind of enjoyed it. You know, I initially I was like, this is cool. I'm getting a, my, getting my full pay tax free. You know, this, this is not a bad deal. And after about two weeks, I was over it. I went to the doctor and they told me, Hey, look, like we need to get this thing. We need to get this surgery approved. The tissue in your wrist, your ligament tissue. If we don't act on it right away, it will be, it'll die basically. And then we'll have to graft a tendon from another part of your body and try to repair what we can in your wrist. But it's workers comp. And if you've ever dealt with workers comp, they have a procedure and I don't really know how much sense it makes, but they have a procedure. And that procedure is usually they do the most non-aggressive treatment for weeks and months at a time. And then when that proves to fail, then maybe they'll give you a cert. They'll, they'll let you have a surgery. Well, I get this news that, that yeah, you're, you're most likely not going back to work. You, this is, this is a career ending injury. And I felt, I felt like I, I just lost everything. You know, my, my son was hardly around at all anymore. He was doing really poorly in school. I didn't realize the full extent of the things that he was involved in, but I knew it wasn't good. I hadn't, as a matter of fact, there, there was a period of time where I hadn't heard or seen from, seen him in several months. And it was right around this period of time in my life. So it was, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. When I got this news that I probably was never going to go back to work, I, I remember that day like it was yesterday. I, there was a shift. That was, the, that was the eruption. And uh, what followed that is the most shameful, embarrassing, horrible, horrible time of my life. I don't know if it was that same day when I got that news or shortly thereafter. I just felt hopeless. I felt this, it, it, it's completely illogical. It's completely irrational. It's, it's it, it, looking back on it now with, you know, a, a healthier mind and a healthier state of mind to be able to look back on that. Now you just think, how did you, ever get yourself into that spot. But that's why I know that depression is real. I used to, quite honestly, for many, many years, I always thought that was an excuse. 
like, oh, boo-hoo, poor baby, you're depressed, right? I always felt that suicide was a selfish act. I still kind of do. But I could never comprehend why anybody would kill themselves. Now I'm laying in bed and I'm getting these horrific thoughts, not like hearing voices. Okay. I'm not, I wasn't a schizophrenic, but just these thoughts in my head, like, and this is, this is what they would say. You know, what the fuck are you doing? Like your son wants nothing to do with you. You're never going to go back to work. Like the only thing you had in life was being a cop. You're not even going to have that anymore. Like, dude, you're a fucking worthless, man. You're a piece of shit. Like you can't even go to sleep at night without drinking or taking some, some Tylenol PMs and, and some whiskey or some drinking some beers. Dude, you're a fucking loser. Just end it, man. Like, like, what are you doing? Just end it. It wasn't long after that, that, um, it was about a week before Christmas and I didn't know if my son was even going to want to come around for Christmas. And, and the only other family that I have is just my mom. And so holidays for us were always awkward, you know, and, and on my son's, on, on my ex-wife's side of the family, this family is huge, right? And so whenever they would have a get together, a holiday, you know, my son obviously enjoyed it a lot more. I mean, I can't blame him. And in my house, it was, it was just me and, and grandma. And this year I was worried that it was just going to be me and my mom. A lot of people out there wish that they still had their mom. So I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to put it in the context that when you're not in the right state of mind, everything is amplified. Every perceived loss in your life is amplified. A healthy person would look at the medical situation and say, Hey, you know what, man, thank God though. At least you're going to get a medical retirement. I looked at it like I'm fucking worthless. I'm never going to be able to do the things that I enjoy. I'm never going to be able to go kayaking again or, or lift weights or do anything again. And that's, and that was again, looking back at it from my current state of mind, I realize how ridiculous that sounds probably to all of you if you're not in that same place yourself, but just try to, to understand that when you get to that level of depression, logic goes out the window. Reason goes out the window. Everything is amplified and everything is horrible. Another example of that is when I knew something was desperately wrong yet didn't get any help for it. You know, this was, it was just before Christmas and I was at Target and I was just getting some random stuff. It wasn't like I was there to buy a gift for my son or something that might trigger some emotion. I was just there getting like toilet paper or some random stuff. And I was in the aisle and all of a sudden I just started like, like I started to get teary eyed. Like I was going to cry. I had to hold my composure. I mean, you talk about a red flag. I'd be driving in my car and just all of a sudden get upset just, just like feel like I was going to cry. I had to, I had to bite my lip and <laughs> try to hold it in. And then, you know, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed by that, but I am, you know, that, that I got to a point in my life where I was so out of control and, and we haven't even reached rock bottom yet, but I was so out of control that I just, 
the only thing that would make me feel better is alcohol. And let me tell you something. If something else would have been legal for me to use, like, like if it would have been like, okay for me to smoke weed or do something else, I probably would have done it. I would have done anything at that point just to, just to feel better. Like I said, it's a few days before Christmas and I'm at home and I'm, and I, and I, I just, I just broke down. I broke down. I, I, I completely lost it. I couldn't identify. I couldn't identify what was going on. I couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint a source. I think I was just so overwhelmed with amplified sources that, I mean, fine, pick one. I mean, they're all equally bad. I've got these thoughts in my head. I've convinced myself that I'm worthless, that, that if I'm not a cop, I'm nobody. I mean, you're not a dad anymore. You're not going to be a cop anymore. What the fuck are you? Like, what do you identify as? You're just like, dude, your life is over. And I drank that night. I drank myself into oblivion that night. And I took, I just wanted everything to go away. And I just wanted to go to sleep. And I, I had been prescribed trazodone because I told my doctor that I was just having trouble sleeping. I didn't tell him the whole story. Of course not. Right. You know, so he prescribed me trazodone as a, as a means to hopefully, you know, to maybe help with sleep. That wasn't like an Ambien. Right. He didn't want to give me that. Thank God. But what would happen next is, is identical to what people that are on those type of sleeping pills claim happens to them. The next thing I know, and, and mind you, I'm, I'm gonna, I have to qualify what I'm about to say with the fact that at home, I've got food, I've got anything that I would need to sustain myself. There would be no reason for me to leave my house and no desire to leave my house. I wanted to be home and I just wanted to be by myself. So I didn't have a desire to leave. And for whatever reason, the next thing I know, I've got this bright light in my face. I, I come to, I guess I was asleep, you know, knocked out in my car for 10 plus minutes. And I come to in the drive-through of a Carl's Jr. And the flashlight in my face, obviously, is that of a local police officer. They get me out of the car and, and that night I blew almost three times the legal limit. And that would be my second time in the wrong end of a police car going to county jail. What I'm about to say next is probably going to make no sense again to anybody who hasn't been here, but been in that situation or, or been that low in their lives. But when I got to jail, that wasn't even the worst part of my life. I was in a way, I wasn't thankful to be in jail. Don't get me wrong. But of course now I have anxiety. I can't sleep in there. You know, I just can't wait to get out. And it was so nice because I had something else to be worried about now. I had something else to think about now. I didn't have the voices, you know, the thoughts that were telling me that I was worthless and a piece of shit. Although I did now have another reason to have those, right? I mean, 
Now I've got all these additional worries, but I was so worried now I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my medical. I'm going to lose everything because of this. What is wrong with me? But I was so thankful that I had something else to be worried about now. So I get out the following morning and I'm placed on administrative leave and my chief who treated me so incredibly well. Uh, he, he just was really, really good to me. And he didn't have to be because here I am as a second chancer. It's already been, you know, already had to resign from one police department because of a DUI. And now here I am in the same exact position again. And that chief just, he, he knew, he knew, he, he, he knew me enough to say, this, this isn't Shane. What's, what the fuck's going on? And he gave me a flyer for the employee assistance program. And I had to tell him that, hey, chief, I've already taken advantage of this, which I had. I thought I had an alcohol problem, which maybe goes with, you know, maybe that's that to everybody out there. That's the obvious conclusion that you would draw. It certainly was the obvious conclusion that I drew. Well, I have an alcohol problem. And so I reached out about a year prior and I had a really bad experience with the employee assistance program and the and the uh, therapist that they referred me to. And I said, well, this, you know, fuck this. Like, no wonder people don't go to therapists. And I had to tell him, I was like, chief, I've already taken advantage of that. And I said, but I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get better. Uh, not, not to plead for my job or anything like that. I just need to, I just need to get better, but you know what? It, it's identical to feeling a certain way physically and then just telling yourself, well, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get better. When you have no idea what the fuck is wrong with you in the first place. So I did what I felt was obvious and I enrolled in an alcohol treatment program. And I participated in the program and I got a lot of benefit from the program. But in the program, it's just basically said, hey, don't drink or use no matter what. And that on its face seems highly effective, right? If you don't drink and you don't use, all your problems go away. Everything that brought you to this point in your life goes away or won't repeat itself, I should say. And it just wasn't, it wasn't reaching to a point to where I felt that I was getting a benefit. I went through the motions and I really, really appreciated my counselors. Well, most of my counselors will get into that. But I, I just knew there was something else going on. So I said, in, in conjunction with this, I'm going to try to find a therapist. So I looked, I called my insurance company. I said, what therapists are in the area that you cover? Are there any that specialize in trauma? And so I ended up meeting a therapist, meeting with a therapist. And I knew right off the bat, that now I'm in the right place. 
But if you've ever been to therapy or if you've ever considered going to therapy, it's not something that, especially something of this magnitude that I'm facing, is not something you fix in a month or two months or even six months. And so I'm in the baby phases of therapy, but I'm almost done with this alcohol treatment program. And I go in the day that I'm scheduled for my, my exit interview. So it's maybe two weeks out from, from graduating this program. It was a horrific experience in group. We had a counselor who could not manage some issues that were going on in the group. It just, I think it just confirmed to me that I had spent close to three months in a place that probably wasn't the most appropriate place for me to be for the problems that I had, the magnitude of issues that I had. Because I was using, to me, I was using alcohol as a legal solution to my problems. The problem for me wasn't alcohol, as ridiculous as that probably sounds. The problem was all of these other underlying issues that I was using alcohol in excessive amounts to treat. You treat the underlying issue, now all of a sudden you don't have the issue with the alcohol. And that was one of my biggest pet peeves with the program is the focus needs to be on these underlying issues, but you can't really get into that in a three-month program, right? You can't, you can't get into someone's deep psychological and emotional issues in a three-month program, especially if they don't want to open up about it. Like I didn't want to open up about it for many, many years. On this day, when I have this horrific experience, I just realized this counselor, like I think because I was a model student and gone through the motions and had never never pissed dirty and never, uh, you know, never shown up late and was, was at every single scheduled meeting that I was supposed to be and was participating in the program fully and committed 100%. This counselor, I think just assumed that, man, he's good. And we went through this exit interview and just kind of went through the motions and, and it, and it was so nonchalant and it just seemed like it was like, Hey man, you're good. Yeah. You're going to be great. And it's not her fault. Don't get me wrong. It just goes to show that outwardly you can look a certain way, even to a professional. But on the inside, you could be the worst you've ever been. And that's where I was at that day. I left there. I got home. And I knew I wasn't going to be tested again. That was, that was, the, that was the end of any of the testing that was going to be happening as far as like, alcohol screening and whatnot. And I said, you know what? I'm not doing this again. I'm not living like this again. Maybe, maybe, maybe I will find strength and, and healing or whatever you want to call it through therapy. But I just started that. And now I've got this injury and I've got, I've got my son that's not around. I've got all these issues and, you know, I'm just blaming everything else. It goes back to what I was saying about personal accountability. I couldn't sit there and examine myself and say, what did you do to contribute to this issue? I couldn't do that. I was incapable of doing that. And then the thoughts came back with a vengeance. 
with a vengeance. I mean, now there's all this added, added components of you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your medical, you, you know, your trash. No, no wonder your son doesn't want anything to do with you. Now he really won't want anything to do with you. Like when you were a cop and, and you were all these great things and you were successful, he didn't want anything to do with you. And now that you're, you know, have gone to jail and you're a loser and you're gonna lose your job again. Yeah. You think you wonder why your son doesn't want anything to do with you? You know, just fucking kill yourself. Just kill yourself. And I would get angry at those. I'd get angry at the thoughts because I wasn't at a place that, that suicide was even an option for me. But I didn't want to be tormented any longer. And I knew that if I tried to go to sleep, I'm going to be tormented with thoughts and dreams like I had been for nights prior. I mean, so many nights prior. And I can't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm having a hard time articulating this into a fashion that really makes it hit home. Just how bad this was. It was the worst time of my life. It was, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. And I know there's people out there that have experienced way worse. All I can, all I can attest to is my own personal experience and, and the, in the scale of measuring things out as to things that are bad and things that are good in life, this tipped the scales and knocked them off the fucking table. It was the absolute worst thing ever. Losing a job or anything else isn't, you can get another job. But when your mind does this to you, when, when you get to a level of, of that's so deep and so dark that your mind tells you to fucking kill yourself, that's, that's pretty damn bad. And I just wanted it to stop. I just wanted it to stop. And I knew a way to make it stop. And uh, wouldn't you fucking know it, I take a bunch of Trazodone and I drank a bunch of, <laughs> so hard for me to even say this, uh, drank, a, drank a bunch of, um, drink a bunch of whiskey and sat on the couch and cried and put on some music and just tried to cry it all out. Thought maybe that might make me feel better. And it didn't, it didn't make me feel better. And so I just, I just said, okay, well, you know what, eventually I'm going to pass out. And then, and you know what, whatever happens, happens. I, I, I'm, I'm just so tired of everything. Now, this was about three o'clock in the afternoon. Just to try to put this whole story into context, this is three o'clock in the afternoon when I'm having this conversation with myself and I'm, and I'm literally, you know, trying to pour some Diet Coke into my, into my whiskey so I can just drink it faster and just get it down so I can be as numb as I possibly can be. And please try to understand that it didn't have to do with the fact that I was craving alcohol. You know, that's why I can sit here today and, and with confidence tell you that this isn't about alcohol. As ridiculous as that may sound, this was all about relief. 
If I would have had that same level of relief through some other substance or through some other means, I would have been just as happy with that. This is all about solution. It's all about relief. Well, it worked. I passed out so hard that the next thing you know, I hear raindrops. Like a, a, it, was, it was not raining really hard, but it was, it was raining pretty good. And the raindrops are illuminated, right? And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? And I thought at first I was dreaming. Well, I wish I would have been dreaming because why I do this every single time I got that far gone, I have no idea, but there I was back in my car. And yeah, I had had a DUI already, but I wasn't ordered to put an intoxilizer in my vehicle as of yet. That would have saved me. It could have very well saved my career. I don't know. I'll never know. But I was able to get my car and drive and I, 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 we, we kind of determined later, my therapist kind of thought that maybe it's because home was the place that generated a lot of these feelings and I didn't want to be in that place any longer, but it was a complete blackout. I have zero independent, right? The last thing I remember is putting on that music and crying and realizing that this isn't helping and then just trying to drink some more. That's the last thing I remember. And then again, that was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was obviously sunny outside. It's now nighttime. It's raining. The raindrops on my windshield are being illuminated by a flashlight. And well, I think you know the rest of the story. You're in your car with the ignition running and you're obviously intoxicated. And then on top of being intoxicated, I was under the influence of sedatives. It's just so hard for me to say this. It's so hard for me to share this because it just makes me feel like a piece of shit. You know, like it does and it doesn't. When you're sharing it, you go back to where you were in that moment. And, and in that moment, I knew any hope was gone. Any hope of my job, any hope of, of a medical retirement, any hope of anything was gone. And I remember being so ashamed and being so unsure of what was wrong with me that I didn't even share it with my attorney because I had an attorney who was representing me for, you know, being on administrative leave and trying to get me my job back. And he was very, very, very diligent in trying to get me my job back. And he had a sister who was an alcoholic. He shared this with me and, and, and it eventually killed her. And I didn't have, I remember one time I tried to share with him some of the feelings that I was having. And, and, and I think to most people, including most people listening to this right now, I think most people assume that when you've had problems that involve alcohol, that when you, when you complain about depression or, or maybe something underlying that's causing you to drink, I think a lot of people view that as an excuse. And that was the impression I got from him. And I just shut it down and never brought it up again. And I just took ownership of the fact that, yeah, I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, I need to go to AA. 
yeah, I need to go. I'm in therapy. Yeah, I need, I, you know, I, it is what it is. And that's, that's where I left it because that's at face value. What most people would say, yeah, you're a drunk and this is what drunks do. They get DUIs. But I knew that wasn't the case. I knew there was so much more to it. I just didn't know what it was yet. Well, eventually I go, you know, I, I obviously now I have to resign from my department. And fortunately, as a result, because I was injured at work, workers comp still covers my injuries. And I'm still, I'm still waiting for more surgeries. I've had two, those two were unsuccessful. And now I'm awaiting a bone graft and some other a fusion surgery. And I, I don't know what all they're doing, but it's, so now I'm facing all these other consequences, you know, certain jail time, DMV consequences, financial consequences. I've, I'm losing my job. I still have to go through these surgeries. I don't know when I'm going to be able to utilize my right hand fully again. I'm going to have to go to court, you know, all this stuff. And I said, you know what? This is not the time for me to just surrender to this. I don't know what's going on, but I know it's really fucking bad. And so I, um, I maintain my, my therapy. I went every week. And as I, as I continue to go and continue to, to disclose more and my therapist learn more about me, she ended up giving me a, an assessment. And in that assessment, you know, I answered, the, I answered the questions honestly, and some of them were not very pleasant to admit, but I knew that it was confidential. So I, I answered very honestly. And that's when I learned that not only did I have PTSD, but I had the most severe form of it. Not only did I have depression, but I had the most severe form of it. And uh, that was depressing in and of itself. Like you want to know the answers, but when you get the answer, you don't, you wish you didn't know. And I just, I just felt like I was, I was a crazy person. You know, now I'm no longer a cop. My, my relationship with my son is, is, is a difficult to say the least. And now I'm crazy. Wonderful. But I continued and I went back every week and she suggested some books and I read and I studied and, and as I got further and further distanced from the most horrific times of my life, I started getting closer and closer and closer to like accepting that, okay, this is what's wrong with me. At least I'm not just a fucking drunk. There's something else going on. So at least I have that information now. How do I fix it? And so a period of months go by and I, I finally got to a point where my therapist felt comfortable doing what's called EMDR with me. And for those of you that aren't familiar with EMDR, it stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. It's a, 
it's basically a complicated way of saying that they've, they've figured out a way to cause your mind to process unresolved trauma. I thought it was horseshit. And if I hadn't have been so desperate to get help, I probably would have told her to fuck off, honestly, because it just, it just in of itself, just, just the name alone sounds like something that a telepsychic would do for you. Right. And so I, I just, I just didn't buy it. And, but I said, you know, you're going to have to have an open mind. What, what other choice do you have? You just, are you going to be sick the rest of your life or, you know, try it. If it doesn't work, then try something else Then try something else. And I went in for my first session of EMDR and there's this process where they take you through a series of things that you can pinpoint that are troubling, you know, a lot of it for me involved things with my son, even more so than work, believe it or not. And so we, we started working through those things and I highly encourage anyone out there that's, that's had problems with PTSD or, or trauma or depression or whatever it may be. If, if, if you're, if you find a therapist that, that is qualified to do EMDR and they recommend it for you, I highly recommend that you, that you go through with it. Just understand and, and your therapist will tell you, but just understand it is brutal. It can be brutal. And I'm, and I'm very thankful that I went into it with an open mind because I think if I had not, I would obviously would not have benefited the first session, you know, after, after the session was concluded, I went home, you know, and at, the, at this time I'm not driving, you know, I'm, I'm taking the bus everywhere and I got on the bus and, and as I'm on my way home on the bus, man, I started to feel this kind of like this, the same feelings that I was feeling at the lowest rock bottom moment of my life. And I'm thinking, oh man, come on. You know, why did I agree to do this? And then it got worse. That night was really hard. And my therapist had warned me that like, hey, you're going to most likely relive some of this stuff as, it's, as, as your brain is trying to, to deal with this. And, you know, her telling me that in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah, whatever. And yeah, wow. It, it was, uh, it was rough, but the next day I was okay. There was a little bit of lingering after effects, but, but I was okay. And the important thing was, is I didn't want to drink it off. I didn't want to take a bunch of, you know, sleeping pills or, or drink some alcohol to get rid of that. I, I wanted it. I, I embraced it. It was really weird. It was miserable and I hated it, but I wanted it to happen. And I think that's because I had been prepared up until that moment that, you know, we're getting ready to do this. And when we do, this is what to expect. And if it happens, this is how you need to react to it. And I was able to, and that was really encouraging. So then I went back the following week and we did it again. And again, man, it, it, it was, I don't, it wasn't as bad as the first week, but it was bad. And I think it took us I want to say it was close to six weeks, one hour each week of EMDR. It might've been longer. It might've been shorter. I don't recall right now, but, 
And then I guess we finished, you know, I, I didn't realize that we were, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect. Obviously I'd never been through it before. So I didn't know when it was done and we reached an end. And I'm telling you right now, EMDR saved my life. And I think it saved my life literally because had I not, had I not gone through it, I know at some point I would have faced another, another episode of a, a, a rock bottom moment, if you will. And I know that I would have wanted to handle it the same exact way or, or through another means, some, any way, whether it was alcohol or whatever else, whatever would numb me out so I didn't have to feel it anymore, I know I would have done it. And now I literally have a completely different outlook on, on, on nearly everything. After I went through EMDR and recovered from that for about a month, everything that I had to face going forward, I faced with a completely different attitude. I still had jail time coming up. And the jail time fell right on Christmas, right? I mean, I think it was that maybe uh, two or three days before Christmas. But, you know, it worked out that, that I was able to get house arrest and I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time in jail. And it was a very insignificant period of house arrest, which, you know, I'm very thankful for. But throughout that entire period of time, when I normally would have been just feeling low and, and having these horrific thoughts and, and feeling so down about myself, I felt the exact opposite. I looked at that as, okay, this is one set of consequences that I need to face, but it's temporary. See, when I was at the depths of my depression, nothing was temporary. Nothing felt temporary. Everything was permanent and everything was a disaster and everything was, was the most horrible state that you could possibly think of. That's what depression does to you. It makes you think that even the most minor problems in life are catastrophic, especially at that level of depression. I mean, it, your, your brain is literally releasing chemicals that are inappropriate for the feelings that you're having. And so it just amplifies those feelings out to the point to where it's completely irrational. Now, I'm a, you know, I was able to deal with all of that. I was able to deal with all those consequences and have a very positive attitude about it and say, you know what? This is temporary. This will pass. I'm going to use this for good. At some point when I'm ready and I, and I feel like I'm able to articulate this, I'm going to share this with people. I'm going to try to be a, a beacon of hope for other people out there that may not be at the extreme level that I was, but maybe that who knows, maybe they're worse or maybe they're just right on the brink of just starting to feel some of these symptoms and things maybe just a little off and maybe not right. And maybe I can provide them with a, with a, with a story that they can refer to and say, I definitely don't want to end up like that guy. Maybe I should give this a try and see if it works. But if I were to keep it to myself, that would have been the most extremely selfish thing that I could have ever done. And that's exactly what I would have done had I not reached out and got the help. And like I told you, it, didn't, it took a significant period of time and it still requires maintenance. I don't think I'm going to go off the deep end anytime soon. Like I, I, I feel like I'm in a really, really great place. 
but I don't want to take a chance. And that's where I'm at. And, and that's the, the gist of the story. And I'm sure that we'll expand on it more in the future, but I, for the sake of time, I don't want to keep rambling on about things, but, but what's important for you to gather from all this is, yeah, it's pretty, pretty freaking tragic. You know, what, what I, the, the level of destruction that I was able to bring into my life is, is really bad. And to violate public trust and to put people's lives in danger. I mean, thank God it worked out the way that it did. Thank God I was just asleep in my car and that I somehow navigated myself to a safe place and fell asleep. And then someone, you know, saw me in my car for a few hours and got concerned and, and called the police. Uh, otherwise, there's a really good chance that I probably would have woken up a few hours later and been okay to drive and just taken myself home. But you know what? I'm thankful that it happened that way. I'm thankful that I didn't get away with it. The first time that I, that I said, I can't handle this. I'm going to go get as fucked up as I possibly can. The first time I did that, I got caught. And I am so incredibly thankful for it. And, and, it, and I think it rubs people the wrong way when some of the people that I've shared the story with, when I, when I say, I am 100% convinced I don't have an alcohol problem. And people think, they say, you're insane to say that. And I say, no. The problem that I had was way deeper and darker than alcohol. I just used alcohol as a solution for that problem. And that solution brought me its own set of problems that destroyed me even further. And that's why I'm hoping to be an element of change for our law enforcement so that it's, so that it's more acceptable to reach out and get the help that they need. Like I mentioned before, you blow out your knee, you blow out your back. You can go to your sergeant and you can say, Hey, I was jumping this fence and I blew out my knee and I need to go to the doctor and they may give you shit for it. And you know how, whatever, but you go to the doctor and they check you out. And if you need surgery, you get it. If you don't, you don't, you get back. And that the whole point is to get you back to work. Well, the same should be true for mental health because what's going on in this current day and age and the way that our officers are being treated, it was bad enough before. I mean, I had it made in the town that I worked in. Yeah. Not everybody liked the cops, but for the most part, our citizens were behind us a hundred percent. Now these officers are facing unprecedented times where there, where governments or government entities are even saying, yeah, we need to get rid of our cops. Yeah. We need to disarm them. Yeah. We need to take away their tactical equipment. Oh yeah. We need to dismantle our police departments and, a, and the mental health crisis and law enforcement is going to explode. Mark my words. I hope, and I pray that there won't be anybody else that has a story like mine, but there very well could be. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. And so those of you out there that were able to listen to this with an open mind and say, yeah, okay, I may not understand everything that he's going through, but I acknowledge that it happened and I acknowledge that it's real and I acknowledge that there's help available. 
Now, for those of you out there that are listening to this and, and, you're, and you're feeling a certain way that doesn't feel right, please, please, I beg you, seek help. You may have to go to two or three different therapists before you find one that you click with. Fine, do it. You guys and gals right now need it more than, than law enforcement ever has before in the past. I know that I'm going to get mixed reactions from this and I'm prepared for it. I'll take whatever criticism is out there if it means that someone hears this and gets some help. If someone hears this and finds some encouragement. If someone hears this and says, I always thought it was bullshit, but you know what? Maybe it helped that guy, so maybe it can help me. Cool. Mission accomplished. I'm not going to bore you with reading directly out of the DSM-5. I thought about doing that, but that's not going to do anybody any good. I don't think you could tolerate sitting there listening to me read from a diagnostic manual. But I, I did want to refer to um, an article that I came across from Lexapol. And it, it just briefly talks about some of the feelings and, and, and symptoms that you would most readily notice in law enforcement. And I've talked about a lot of these in my own story. So some of the symptoms of PTSD that are really prevalent in law enforcement is the inability to sleep, nightmares, intrusive memories that don't fade in intensity. And that's important. As we all know, you, you go through things in life and it sucks in the moment. And then after a while, the intensity fades and you get over it. I can tell you through my experience with, with PTSD is that those intense moments in my life that were directly related to the traumatic incidents that, that led to PTSD did not lose their intensity. In fact, the only way that I was able, ever able the only way that I was ever able to get them to decrease in intensity was through artificial means, meaning knocking myself out with alcohol and sleeping pills or what have you. Um, if anything, the intensity would increase. So that's really something to look out for. It may not be to the extreme levels that mine was, but it could get there. So just something to keep in mind. The feeling of always being on guard or, by contrast, feeling numb. And there are certain times when you may notice these symptoms more often. So, so pay attention to yourself during these times when you're alone, when you're driving, maybe driving to and from work, when you just have nothing but time to think. You know, when, when the wife and kids or the husband and kids are gone and you're just home by yourself, sitting on the couch, those are the times when you really start to notice these things, especially in the early stages. When it gets really advanced like mine was, you, it's difficult to avoid it at all. But one of, my, one of the places where I avoided a lot of those feelings was at work. That's why I loved being at work and doing my job. But at the same time, a lot of elements of that job were killing me. So just be mindful. And the time that you have to yourself, where does your mind go? Where do your thoughts go? How are you feeling in those moments? Those are going to be strong indicators. I'm going to leave some more information in the show notes. Um, it'll obviously be posted on my social media. Whenever I come across a good article or, or a good organization that I feel has the best interests of our law enforcement, first, first responders, and, and really just, just our general public, when, when they have their, their best interests at heart, I'm going to definitely put that on my social media for people to... Uh, 
to explore and see for themselves. But I would, I would encourage you, look, please, if it doesn't matter if you're a cop, if you're not a cop, anything, if, if you can relate even a tiny bit to my story, or if you know someone who's experiencing these symptoms, please, please just contact somebody, a therapist that's near you that, that maybe if you can find one that specializes in trauma, that's even better. But if not, just go talk to somebody. A lot of times, if it's over their head, they will refer you to a colleague that specializes in whatever it is that you're dealing with. And it may take two or three different therapists for you to find a good fit, but please stick it out. I'm not saying that you're going to end up to the point where I was and, and over a period of 12 years, get three different DUI arrests. I'm not saying that. I mean, that's an extreme example, but so were 228 cops last year alone that killed themselves. That's 228, quote, extreme examples. Never say that won't be me. Because I swore in 2008, when I got arrested for DUI, I swore it would never happen again. And under the circumstances of 2008, it probably never would have happened again. That just required a change in behavior. But what happened to me in 2017 and then in the early part of 2018 was the ultimate. I mean, it's not just rock bottom in the sense that like you hear about people that have hit rock bottom in their life. This was my mind completely betrayed me. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. So don't fool yourself. The sooner you get the help, the better and the quicker it'll work. But if you let it, if you let yourself get down to, to a a level of darkness that you've never even known before, the chances of you going and getting the help at that point are virtually none. You won't have the motivation. You won't have the desire anymore because you'll feel so incredibly worthless that you won't even think that you deserve the therapy. So please, Take care of yourself, even if you feel fine. Even if you feel fine, just be mindful of the things to watch out for, please. Again, if you have any questions, refer to the show notes. I'll have some links in, that, in, in the show notes to some resources out there to my friends and my, and my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your encouragement. I apologize if many of you are hearing this for the very first time. Um, it was just something that was very difficult for me to, to kind of put together and, and to organize my thoughts and to get it all out there. And I know that I'm, I'm going to listen to this and realize there was a lot that I missed. And so maybe we'll cover it at another time. But I just wanted to thank all of you from the bottom of my heart for being so supportive and for standing by me when you didn't have any reason to. For the rest of you, Thank you again for joining me here on Ordering Chaos. I'm looking forward to having you as subscribers, and I hope that you got something out of this. Stay tuned. I'm going to be releasing another episode here in the very near future. So make sure you subscribe using whatever platform you're on. And, uh, and please comment and let me know what you thought of the episode. Until then, I'm Shane Norwood. I'll see you on the next episode of Order and Chaos.